0: Let us pray. Almighty God, speak to us this morning beyond my words and open our hearts that we might hear your voice. Amen. Amen. Good morning. morning. My name is Caleb Hummel. I am uh, very pleased to be worshiping with you today. I am a priest here in the Diocese of Western Anglicans in the San Diego Deanery. Um, I have uh, a the honor of being one of the very first uh, priests made by your former rector and our first bishop, Bishop uh, Bill Thompson. In fact, I think I might be the very first person in the diocese to be confirmed, ordained to the diaconate, and ordained to the priesthood by, by Bishop Bill. So it's uh, a pleasure to be with you today, and uh, and I, I'm, I'm really excited to be here. Um, as I said, I'm from San Diego, where uh, Uh, For several years, I worked in a couple of different churches down there. I helped to start a Holy Spirit Anglican Church, which meets in the San Diego State area. Um, And for four years, I was the assistant at Holy Trinity uh, uh, Parish there in the Ocean Beach neighborhood. For the last several years, though, I've had a little bit of a different ministry. Um, I have been primarily a stay-at-home dad. We have a three-year-old boy, Leo, and today a five-month-old named Luke. And so it's been a, a great joy to... To have that be my primary focus of my ministry these days, it also gives me the the ability to come and to visit with, with other churches and fill in from time to time. So once again, good to be here today. I have a confession to make to you this morning. I am a prodigal son. You see, when I was four years old, I decided I needed to run away from home. I had had enough. I was up to here, with my mother telling me what to do all the time. I don't recall the exact uh, incident that initiated this, but I know I was fed up. And I told my mom, I'm over it. I'm going to grandma's house. And my mother, in her wisdom, said, "Okay, let me help you pack. So we loaded up a little duffel bag with all of the essentials. I don't remember what it was. Hopefully there were some clothes in there. I probably packed my Teddy Ruxpin and some other toys. And uh, and I grabbed my little bicycle, still with training wheels on, and put my bag on the handlebars and started to pedal down the block. I I don't remember a whole lot, but I remember the struggle of pedaling with that heavy duffel bag on my handlebars because I kept dropping the bike. I was getting frustrated. I wanted to make a good exit. I was making a stand, and here I was fumbling it all along. Uh, I think I must have been a little surprised that my mom let me go, because I started to get a little worried. I remember just about a block down from our house was the Methodist Church, and my I got in front of the Methodist Church, and the, 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 the bike fell over yet again. I think I, it hit my shin that time, and I was just uh, just had had enough, and I just broke down. Crying, and then out of nowhere, seemingly, my mom walked out and said, "Are you ready to come home now?" <laughs> and boy was I. <clears throat> Somewhere latent in all of us is this uh, prodigal nature, this this desire to run, to get away when we don't get our own way, to to be our own people, to seek freedom. And so I think, uh, for that reason, the this parable that we read in our gospel today often speaks deeply to our, our souls and influences us in some special ways. In my life, the, the parable of the prodigal son has, has come up time and time again in some interesting situations and some interesting uh, 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 seasons in my life, and it has spoken to me in, in many different ways. It has shown me things about myself. It has influenced me and, and developed me spiritually. I can't think of another passage of scripture that has, has had such an amazing impact on me. Maybe the prodigal parable is, is that for you as well. Or maybe there's, there's another passage of scripture for you that it just seems like you can't get away from it. God continues to, to bring it to you, to, to ask you to respond, to shape you. And to make you who you are as a follower of him, this parable of the prodigal son uh, i 'm not the only one who's been impacted by it I know um, the the great Catholic scholar and writer Henry Nowen, uh was so captivated by the narrative of the parable of the prodigal son that that he spent years meditating on it he 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 saw this uh, painting by Rembrandt. You might be familiar with it. It's the, the son is kneeling before the father who's cut his hands on his shoulder there. And he's, he's disheveled and his sandals are falling off his feet. And he's, he just looks emaciated and, and tired. And the father is embracing him in his splendor and his beautiful red robe. And then there are some onlookers around, including the older brother that we read about. And Henry Nowen was so captivated by this that, that he couldn't get it out of his mind. Everywhere he went, he talked to people about this story, about this painting. And, and, and he continued to be uh, convicted by it and inspired by it. Ultimately, it led him to change the entire trajectory of his life. Up until this point, he had been a, a great scholar. He had, he had worked at, at Notre Dame and at Yale and was, was now working at, at Harvard University, where uh, uh, interestingly enough, my my later church history professor was his uh, teaching assistant at this time, and and during this season that he's reflecting on this this painting and this parable, he's led to give up all of the trappings of his scholarly life, and to go and to, to begin serving at a at a community for for the the uh, profoundly mentally handicapped in Canada. He gives up all the prestige and notoriety of being a Harvard scholar to be a pastor to to people who some couldn't even talk to him, who didn't understand who he was or how important he was, but who just loved him and loved having him there. That's quite an impact for a few verses in scripture to have on someone's life. I pray that uh, something in God's word will have that kind of an impact on your life as well. So clearly this is a a powerful passage, the parable of the prodigal son, but let's stop talking about it and actually start looking at it. How about that? First, this morning, as we dig into the actual scripture, I want us to to have a little bit of context in mind. We didn't read it, but earlier in this chapter in Luke's gospel, chapter 15, uh, we have sort of the scene set. Jesus is, is at table with sinners and tax collectors, it says and uproll his uh, his favorite nemeses, the Pharisees and the scribes. Those guys just were always coming out of the woodwork. They were infatuated with Jesus, weren't they? They couldn't let him get away with anything. And they come up and they say, what are you doing, Jesus? Why are you eating with these sinners and these tax collectors? Don't you know that any teacher of any good repute would stay as far away from them as possible? These degenerates, these scum- How dare you sit down and eat with them and and claim to be from God? It's this encounter that leads Jesus to tell three parables. The parable of the lost sheep, in which the 99 are left behind so that the the shepherd could go and find the one that is lost. Or the the parable of the lost coin, where the woman just ransacks her entire house in order to find that, that one coin. And then finally, the parable of the lost son, or the prodigal son. So as we, as we read this story, we've got to keep that, that audience, that original audience in mind that Jesus was talking to, the sinners who are sitting with him and the Pharisees, the religious elite who are questioning him. I don't think it's as far reach for us to join in with the, the majority of church tradition who, who equates the, the younger son in that story with the sinners and the tax collectors and the elder son in the story with, with the Pharisees and the scribes so Jesus is is talking directly at them. He's not just giving them a nice story, but he's he's trying to inspire and to convict where it needs to happen. As we enter into this passage, verse 11 tells us, there was a man who had two sons. Now, I've already uh, uh, called this parable the parable of the prodigal son. That's what most of us know it by. In fact, if you open up the Bibles in the pew there, I'm sure that it will be titled that way in the scripture. Sometimes it's called the parable of the lost son in in, in certain translations of the Bible. But I think this is a bit of a misnomer. The younger son, the prodigal son, is certainly important to the narrative, but he's not the only actor here. In fact, there are some who see the father as the central figure. After all, it's the father who interacts with the younger son, and it's the father who who interacts with the elder son. It's the father's graciousness and love that is central to this passage. And so some call this the parable of the gracious father. But then there's the elder brother, right? You have the, the younger brother and the elder brother. Both of them are, are being compared and contrasted in, in their responses and their actions and their lifestyle. And so I think maybe my, my preference is, let's, let's call this the parable of the lost sons, plural. Both of them have strayed in ways, as we will see. Let's continue. The younger son comes to his father. In verse 12, he says, uh, Father, give me my share of the property that is coming to me. Now, when we read that today, it doesn't sound too terribly bad, maybe a little audacious. But maybe we read it in a way that's like, uh, you know, Dad had set aside some money for college, and I'd rather use it to go backpacking through Europe or, or do something like that. So, hey, can I have my, can I have that savings you've set aside for me now, so I can, you know, while I'm young and energetic, I can go and have have some fun, have some experiences. I want to follow my dreams, you know, follow my heart. And so, you know, maybe it's a little inappropriate, but uh, it's not all that bad. But if we if we read it with that lens, we miss uh, the egregious sin. That is committed by the younger son. In this, the the inheritance laws were very clear in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy, it, it spells out the elder son gets a double portion. All the other children get get single shares. So this the son was entitled to to one third of the estate of the father. Uh, they didn't have bank accounts, so their property was their was their riches. The the cattle, the sheep, the the land that they owned, the grains that they had stored up. This was their. Their wealth, and so um, when when it was time to inherit, uh, it was after the father had passed away, and then the land would be, and the and the property would be separated, and the sons could do with it as they pleased. So the the son is is saying two things in making this request that are just uh, heartbreaking. The first thing is he's saying is. Dad, all this that you've worked for, all this that you continue to work to build, I want you to chop it up and give it to me now. You're not allowed to enjoy it in your retirement. You're not allowed to, to sit back and, and allow it to continue to build and grow. I want it now. And what he's also saying in making that request is you're, you're better off dead to me. I don't need you. I just need your money. Sad insult to injury, once the father grants his request, he liquidates his assets. And assuming that he, he sells off the property, he sells off the, whatever it was, and, and takes the cash, and, and then he leaves. So once again, he says, I don't need you. Not only do I not need you, I don't need your culture, I don't need your religion. I'm going to a faraway place where I can do what I want to do. This passage tells us that he, he engages in some reckless living. We can only imagine what that looked like. Maybe if he were alive today, he went to Vegas and put everything on black and just let it ride. I don't know. The elder brother later speculates that maybe he was, he was being a little uh, uh, sexually inappropriate and, and engaging in uh, using prostitutes. We don't know. But we do know that it must have been pretty terrible because he wanted to get as far away from his people away from anybody who could call him out on what his actions were doing he wanted total freedom to be able to live his life the way he wanted to live it now as bad as the sin of requesting this inheritance was to begin with he goes on to to do another terrible thing uh, and he squanders it all he just lets it all just melt away Jesus tells several stories about the importance of good stewardship in this in this culture. It was very important that you took care of the blessings that God gave you, and that you, you built those up and you protected those. And the son doesn't care. He just lets it all go. He finds himself destitute. And on top of that, the, an economic downturn happens. A, a great recession, a great famine happens in this land. And so all of a sudden, he's not... Paying for bottle service in the club anymore, with everybody gathering around, and he's the life of the party and having a good time. Now he's got nothing, and now he has nobody. He's all alone in a strange land, no friends, no family, no prospects. And so he hires himself out to a pig farmer. Now I'm from Iowa. This is, I mean, we're known for cows and corn, but we also have a lot of pigs there. And so this is. When I read this at first, I think, oh, well, that's a good job, yeah. But for a first-century Jewish boy, this was as low as you could get. I don't know what today's modern equivalent would be, and I won't speculate just in case uh, some of you have uh, less desirable jobs here, but you can imagine what kind of muck would you have to get into to kind of equal the depth that he had fallen to. And not only that, it wasn't a very good job because he couldn't even feed himself based on what he was making. So I don't even know what the point was. He's hungry. He's he's envious of of these pigs, the lowest animal that they could think of. And and all of a sudden, he has a moment of clarity. The, the, The passage basically says, he comes to his senses. And he says in verse 18, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. He has a change of heart. He's realized the error of his ways. He's realized his mistake. And he's, he's seen that even in, in the depths of his despair, he's recognized something from his former life that, that, that sparked something in him, that he wanted back. Back when he first made that request to the Father, the Father graciously grants it. When the original hearers would have heard that that part of the story, immediately they would have been unable to identify with the Father. They would have had no frame of reference for knowing this man. You see, any father who knew his scripture and who was a respectable member of society, knew that if you had a disobedient and disrespectful son, they needed to be punished. So when the son comes and requests this, uh, this gift from his father, demands his inheritance, the father, based on Deuteronomy, would have been able to uh, uh, disown him, or in the extreme, he would have been able to take him to the elders of the city, and they would have been able to stone him. But the father graciously gives what is asked. And so maybe in the muck and the mire of that pig's sty, the son finally sees his father's graciousness and loving, uh, giving, wonderful nature and realizes what he's given up. And so he returns to his father changed, repentant, ready to be reconciled, he's he's so willing to to come back that he'll he'll take a diminished role in the family. He doesn't need to be restored as a son; just to be a servant in his father's household would be enough for him. Well, he heads back home, and we read in the latter part of verse twenty. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The father couldn't contain himself when he saw his son coming home. I love. When he was still a long way off, doesn't that just suggest that the father's there watching and waiting all this time, just hoping that the son comes back? On the, don't they have on the east coast, they have those, uh, those little walkways on the top of the house on, on the coastal communities, so like they call it the widow's walk, right? So when, when the sailor would go out to sea, uh, uh, the, the wife at home would be looking, going up so she could have a nice view to see as the ship coming back. And, and she would continually pace there, waiting and waiting. And and if they they continually were up there looking, they 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 must not. Their husband must not be coming back. I, I can imagine that this father had his own widow's walk. The daily, he just he he was looking, waiting for his son to come home. And when he saw him, he runs to him. Now once again this. In our context, this doesn't seem like that big of a deal. If I go home and I, I see my boys after being gone all day, and I, I run and scoop him up and give him a kiss, and uh, nobody's going to think twice about that. They're going to think, "Oh, how sweet." But this was a dignified man. This was a, a Jewish adult father. He did not run. One did not do this kind of action. Just imagine him in his, his long, flowing robes, you know, he'd have to, he'd have to hike up his dresses. And, and run. This is not a man who did a lot of physical exercise probably anymore. And so he's probably huffing and puffing and sweating. Just completely undignified. But filled with joy. And, and, and the language in there is that he, he falls on his son's neck. Can you just imagine just the, 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 the way that he falls into his son and wraps him up and kisses him? The son tries to confess. But it's almost as if the father cuts him off and says to his servants, go and get the robes and the ring and the shoes and let's, let's have a party because my son is alive and he's back. There's a lot of imagery going on in there. The, 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 the kiss and the embrace is a, a welcome back into the family. The, the robe signifies a, a certain level of status. He's not a servant, but he's, he's better than that. The shoes, slaves didn't wear shoes. Poor people didn't wear shoes, sons wore shoes. So he puts these sandals back on his feet, and that ring, probably like a signet ring, something that signified his his belonging to that family, to that clan. He was back. He was home and he was welcomed. He was restored. He was reconciled. What a party it must have been. They killed the fattened calf. In order to do it this is a, a sacrifice that would have happened maybe for a, a very special religious service because you imagine you know somebody comes home and you're immediately you cook the 22 pound turkey because it's a party this is a i mean cows are big there's a lot of meat on them there must have been everybody from town from the surrounding area was told to come and celebrate because the sun was alive he was back he was restored the, 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 the language we have in there is that they have a symphony of music and, and, and a chorus of dancing. Just an amazing party happens. Everybody's celebrating. Everybody's happy. Everybody's pleased that this is happening. Well, not everybody. We read in verse 25, Now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing. He asks one of the s- servants, What's going on? And he says, you know, your brother's back. We're having a party. We killed the fattened calf. It's a big to-do. And of course, the brother is thrilled that his little brother is back. And he immediately goes in, and he takes his place in the conga line. And no, he's indignant. He is angry. He is peeved that this little brat is being celebrated in this way. He refuses to enter the party, in fact he makes his father come out to him. And when his father comes to him, his father entreats him, he, he implores him, he begs him, come into the party. Come and celebrate your son your brother being back. And he refuses. And in fact, he has some nasty words for his father. He's like, Look you that's that's that that, that look there, that's kind of what it is. Look you how dare you? What do you think you're doing welcoming this little brat back? What do you think you're doing killing the fattened calf for him? He's scum. He's a degenerate. Don't you know what you're doing? Meanwhile, I'm here all along doing everything you've ever asked. I've been a good son. I've never gone away. You've never thrown me even a little shindig, let alone a big fantastic party like this. What do you think you're doing? This is a rather audacious way to address one's father. Notice even back when the son, the younger son, addresses his father, he always addresses him father before he even says anything. Even when he's asking, you know, saying basically, father, I wish you were dead, can I have your money? He still says father. It's a sign of respect to address one's elder or one's superior in a way like that, father or sir. That's, That's how one did. And this elder brother He doesn't go there he just look you who do you think you are going back to Deuteronomy again the father was perfectly in his rights to kick this son out you ungrateful little punk get out of here but once again we see the graciousness of the father as he tells him look you're with me always everything i have is yours Of course, I love you. But it's appropriate for us to be doing this. In verse 32, he says, It was fitting to celebrate and to be glad. For this brother, this your brother, was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. It's appropriate what we're doing. Don't you see? Your brother's been resurrected, everything is different. This is something to celebrate. This is something to be joyous about. Come into the party. Join us. Now it's interesting that we don't know what happens next. Right? We're kind of left with a cliffhanger. Does he go in? Does he does he see the error of his ways? Does he uh, uh, repent and, and join the party? Or does he storm off angry? And not only now he has a a uh, wrecked relationship with his brother but he's got a broken relationship with his father as well what will he do we're left with this cliffhanger the reason we're left with this cliffhanger is because of the context of this parable remember jesus is talking to the sinners who are at table with him and the pharisees who are questioning him the sinners at table are the younger brother they've 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 repented they've come home they're in the party they're having the feast with jesus The Pharisees are standing outside of the party and they're saying, how dare you? How dare you welcome these degenerates in? And Jesus is saying, will you listen to the Father's invitation? Will you rejoice with me at the resurrection of these lost sons? Or will you stand outside and remain separate? He's inviting the Pharisees to to make a choice in that moment. And I think it's interesting that, that as different as these two brothers are, they have some key similarities. The first thing I notice is, is that they both uh, are disrespectful to their father. They both sin against their father. The younger brother, obviously, we've covered that in the way that he requests this and in the way he treats his father. Uh, the, the elder son, in the way that he addresses his father, he makes him come out of the party, come to him as though he's more important. He, he questions him. He, he speaks to him in this way. They both have, have sinned against their father and, and, and disrespected him. It makes me, makes me think, what kind of relationship did they have with their father? How, how well did they know him? Because as well, we see that, that both of them, in their sinfulness, attempt to control and to manage the father. They do it in very different ways, but they both are, are on to the same end. You see, the younger son says, I don't, I don't want you controlling my life, so I'm getting out of here. And I'm going to go live my life the way I want to live it, so I can do what I want to do. Now, the elder brother stays home, but he attempts to be perfect. He does everything the father wants. He does everything the father expects. He does everything that a good son ought to do, not because he loves the father, we find out, but because he wants his money too. He wants the father to give him what's due to him. He wants the father to to honor him and to, to bless him and all of that. It's not out of love that he serves his father. It's out of expectation that he'll be rewarded if he does everything right. Neither of them seem to know the father. Neither of them seem to have an intimate relationship with the father. And both brothers have an opportunity to repent, to change their ways, to come into the party. They both receive that invitation. And the younger son uh, is overwhelmed by it and, and celebrates it but the older son we're left to wonder will he come in well, the parable was told to the sinners and to the pharisees there but it's it echoes down to us today there are those among us who identify with that younger son sort of that rebellious streak maybe you were pedaling your tricycles away from home at four years old too i don't know but some of us are born to run others stay home we do what's right we do what's expected of us we show up and we serve and we expect to be rewarded i think some of us go from one to the other we start out maybe as uh, as prodigals who come home and are received into the party but then once the party gets going and we've been around for a little while and then somebody else wants to come to the party we think no this is my party I don't want to listen to your music. I like my music. I don't want to eat your food. I like my food. I don't like the way you're setting things up. I want to set it up my way. We become judgmental. We become closed off. We become like elder brother syndrome. There's a reason why we have confession every single week. And if you do the daily office, every single day we confess. Guess what? We never run out of stuff to confess. If you do, maybe you have elder brother syndrome. We are called to continually be aware of how we're relating to God and how we we fall into that that relationship, that dichotomy. So as we reflect on this passage in this context of the season of Lent, I I think there are a few invitations that are are, are being issued to us, and, and I'd like to share these with you. The first, I think, is we're invited to examine ourselves. When we began Lent at Ash Wednesday, you were, you were literally invited. The words of the Ash Wednesday service say, I invite you, in the name of the church, to the observance of a holy Lent by self-examination and repentance. This is a wonderful opportunity to look at the examples, the, the extremes of the two sons, both who are getting it wrong, but in different ways, and to, to think, how might I be messing up? How might I be missing out on the invitation that God is giving me to join the party? Am I too busy doing my own thing, disregarding uh, God in my life? Or am I too busy trying to be perfect and manipulate God for the wrong reasons so that I get blessings and honor? It's a wonderful opportunity to, to reflect on those and then, and then to be moved to repentance. The, the second invitation that I think we have is an invitation to respond to God's call respond to God's open arms, his welcoming to us. The younger son doesn't just sit outside when he gets home and continually like flagellate himself saying, I'm such a terrible sinner, I'm such a terrible sinner. But once he comes and confesses and repents before the father, the father embraces him and invites him into the party and the son gets up and celebrates. He's moved on from that brokenness and he's ready to be restored in his relationship. And that's what God invites all of us Let's let's examine ourselves. Let's be moved to repentance and then let's celebrate our restoration with God. Let's take part in the party. Being a Christian is a joyful thing. If you struggle with that today, maybe you have elder brother syndrome. Being a Christian is a party. The the imagery that we're left with in scripture is uh, these banquets, these wonderful feasts when Jesus left us, what he leave us? He left us a feast of the Eucharist, the Thanksgiving supper that we celebrate. And the imagery and revelation of, of the culmination of everything is, is a great banquet, a wedding feast. I don't know about you, but I love to go to a wedding feast. Those are joyful occasions. Those are exciting. That's, that's what we're being invited into. Let us feast with God. Let us celebrate with that. If we're, if we're too stuck uh, in our own, Uh, muck and mire. We're missing out on so much that the Christian life has to offer, so let's respond to that invitation. And the final invitation that I see for us today is an invitation to follow the Father's example. Children are not meant to remain children. These children are meant to grow up and to become like the Father. We're not meant to always be the younger son or always be the elder son, but we're, we're meant to, to grow up and to mature and to, to follow the Father's example. And what is that example? It's an example that, that welcomes in the lost, the broken. This is an invitation to, to be about the work of evangelization, to be about the work of mission. We are called to reach out to the people who, who seem far away and to, to welcome them, to invite them into the party. And we're also invited in this to to watch our attitudes. Sometimes when we are a long ways away from our conversion, when we've been a Christian for many, many years, we forget about what it was like before we were a Christian, how messy and challenging that season is, how how rocky it is as we begin to grow as a disciple. Let's, Let's check ourselves lest we be too judgmental of those who are coming along in the faith. Let's celebrate with them. Let's buck them up and pick them up and and show them the way we go. This is a powerful passage, and and I could probably do a six-week sermon series just on this, but you only have me for today, so we'll leave it here. I pray that God will work through this parable, the parable of the lost sons, and that he will call you to respond in in an important way. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. God, we thank you for his ministry of reconciliation. Lord, we thank you that through that ministry of reconciliation, we have been called to partake with him as as ambassadors of reconciliation as well, God. We pray that we might be like the Father in the parable today and to to follow his example. Lord, I pray that uh, as we move throughout this Lenten season, that you would speak to us, help us to grow in our love of you, and in the way we we follow after you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.